Well, thank you. We have been praying as leadership on how we can be more involved in our community. And um, instead of trying to create a ministry and staff it and run it and figure out how best to operate it, why not find God-honoring ministries within our local community that we can come and join alongside of and partner with and encourage. And, and so that's what we're kind of looking at and hoping that there's opportunities for us to uh, join in with Redemption House. What a great ministry. Thank you, Tommy and ladies, for coming this morning. And um, uh, hope that we can, as a church, encourage one another. So God is in the business of redemption, and we are thankful for that. So um, if you would, we're going to continue through the book of Mark. I'm going to set a timer on my watch because I could go for multiple hours today. If I can remember how to do it. All right. We are continuing through Mark, and in Mark chapter 5, we are going to look at verses 21 through the end of the chapter if we get through it. Um, Verse 43, so if you would, let's go ahead and turn there, and if you would open your copy of God's Word, we'll stand and we'll read through it, and then we'll kind of talk through the text. Starting at verse 21, it says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about Him, and He was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jarius by name, and seeing Him, He fell at His feet. And implored him earnestly, saying, My daughter, my little daughter, is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him, in the crowd, and touched his garments. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see him, to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing, what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Don't, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the children child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where his the child was taking her by the hand he said to her talitha kumai which means little girl i say to you arise and immediately the girl got up and began walking 
for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word this morning. Father, we pray that You would just guide us and direct us. Father, would You speak to our hearts this morning that we might know how real and present You are in our lives. Father, would You touch our hearts that we might follow after You. Father, would You convict us where we need conviction. And Father, we just thank You, we rejoice in You, and we ask Your blessing in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. There have been many times in my life that I can think back on um, that I think of absolute desperation. Loss of a relative through death. uh, uh, Loss of... uh, child before birth, all kinds of things. And you think in those moments, and I'm sure if I were to stop and speak to each one of you individually, um, you would have a story where you can reflect on a time of absolute desperation in your life. You thought there was no hope, and so you cling to whatever you can grab hold of, and you, you do whatever you might, and you cry out as much as you can. And, and, and as I read through this passage, the first time I read it, I thought, how am I going to preach on this awkward? But the more I read this passage, and the more I looked at the context and the original language, it has become one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It is beautiful. We talk about Mark being about a king stooping down to love. And, and in this, we've, we've kind of walked through the king being anointed and the king coming forth. And, and Mark's whole purpose is to pronounce Jesus as king. And he has the power over the winds and the waves. And now he's going to show us that he has power over disease and even death. And in this passage, I think we see one of the greatest pictures of the king's compassion. And it is so beautiful. And I want us to walk through this passage uh, step by step this morning. And if we, hopefully we can get through all of it. But if not, we'll have a part B next week. But we want to look at, at two individuals in this story who are individuals of absolute desperation. So the story starts, and it starts with Jesus having crossed over. And if you remember last week, Travis taught us uh, he talked about the, the man uh, from Gennesaret or Gennesaret, the Gadarenes, however your translation says it, but he was the demoniac who had a, a countless number of demons in him. He was, he was out of his mind and Jesus casts out the demons and the man is left in his right mind and the people come and they are just baffled, blown away and they say to Jesus and his companions, we want you to leave because they were scared. Absolutely petrified. So Jesus doesn't stay anywhere. He doesn't want to be welcomed. So he gets back in his boat and he travels back across the sea. And we have in the story, first of all, what I would say is an invocation, okay, a calling, a, a request. And, and it's, it's of a man, a picture here of a man who is in absolute desperation, brokenness, okay? 
So it says, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogues, Jairus, or Jairus, however you want to pronounce it, by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Can you imagine you know, some of us have children, and as we reflect on our children, um, my daughter is, is going to be, what, 12 this year. Perfect timing. And I think about her, and I think if she was at death's bed, what desperation and what measures I would be willing to take to go through that. And, and that's the reality here. I want us to see a couple of things about Jarius. His name means uh, enlightened by Jehovah, and he is about to be enlightened in an incredible way. But notice, first of all, it tells us his position. He was a ruler of the synagogue. A ruler of the synagogue. That means that uh, he was probably, he wasn't a rabbi or priest. He was probably a keeper of the synagogue. That would, he would open the doors for people. He would arrange the speakers. He would be in charge of, of maintaining the place. He would be, he'd be uh, a well-known individual. He was probably a man of means. He was probably well-respected in society, but also because of this very nature of his position and what is going on with Jesus, I want you to understand the opposition. He would have been essentially on the opposite side because if you remember, we can go back just a couple of chapters, these people from Capernaum even, and a man was healed with a shriveled hand in the synagogue in this very same most likely this very same synagogue, and, and Jairus probably watched it. But if you remember, they leave there, the Pharisees, the leaders of the synagogue, and they say, in their minds, how are we going to destroy this Jesus? Okay, That's the side he's associated with. He may not be feeling the same way, but he's associated. He's in opposition. He's on the opposite side. He's at odds. He, he may have been part of a delegation. It's not necessarily in Mark, but in the other gospel accounts, it's the same, probably the same synagogue. He was probably with the delegation that went to Jesus and said, hey, we have the centurion whose servant is sick and dying. Would you come and heal him? So Jairus probably saw many miracles performed by Jesus himself, the man with the shriveled hand, maybe the centurion's servant. There's all kinds of things. But you can imagine the desperation. And, and, and at the same time, he, he, he's got all of this going for him. He's heard of Jesus. He's, he's probably like, okay, I've got one more shot. And, and what's fascinating is the way he goes about the actions in this text. Okay, I want you to see him. It says, as soon as... As soon as Jesus came, immediately one of the rulers of the synagogue come, and it says, and seeing him, and I want you to understand something. I'm going to get into a little bit of Greek here because it's so essential. The Greek there literally is, is a, a, a verb tense, which means that he had been looking, he had been waiting for Jesus to come. He knew Jesus had gone over the other side. And can you imagine the heart and the, 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 the stress of Jairus as he's like, Jesus is probably the only one who's going to heal my daughter. She's dying. She's probably got a few moments left. It, why did he have to go to the other side of the sea? I need him right now. I need him right now and I've got to wait. And so he's waiting for Jesus. And as soon as Jesus comes, as soon as he sees Jesus, he's running to him. And notice what he does. He falls at his feet. This is a man of reputation. On the other side of Jesus. 
This shows the heart of desperation of the man that he says, I don't care about my reputation and I don't care if he's the enemy. If he can help my daughter, I will do it. And the Greek there, when it says uh, that he comes and he says, my little daughter, uh, this is a, a, a very tender word. It's a very uh, endearing word. He says, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. The Greek words for earnestly saying is an imperfect tense. It means that he was continually saying it. Continually saying it. Please come. Please come. Please come. And the Greek there literally means come and save her. She's at death's door. Desperation. Absolute desperation. There is literally no hope. Come and save her. This is my last ditch effort. And notice the response of Jesus. No words. And He went with Him. We could stop there and have an incredible application of the, the, the hearing of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I know that there are people in here that have absolute desperation because we have a broken sin-filled world. What are we willing to do to go before the Lord and plead with Him earnestly? Lord, please come save. Please come save. And you know what? He will go with. He will go with. But the text doesn't stop with just that. As we see, this is such an interesting transition. And this is one of the reasons why I love preaching verse by verse because you get to walk through uncomfortable texts, right? For a man to walk through this text is a little uncomfortable, but the more I looked at it, the more sweet it is. And I want you to understand the context of this text because there is an interruption that is about to happen that is the one of the most sweet interruptions because we look at this and you can imagine Jairus saying, let's go, let's go, let's go. And immediately they face obstacles because the text tells us that the crowd thronged about them. And the word there, thronged, means that it was like an olive press. They were pressing against one another. And they were, there was, a, a, if you've ever been to a large event where there's thousands of people and you try to get to the front of the line and how you're squeezing and trying to weave through people, imagine that. That's the picture here, that there are people so pressed tight and Jesus is trying to get through and Jairus is like, we got to get to my daughter, we got to go, we got to go. And then in the midst of this, this interruption happens. And if you notice the interruption, something that is very fascinating is the woman never interrupts Jesus, Jesus interrupts the whole thing. Because for Jesus, there is never an interruption. The woman was always a part of his schedule and his plan of events. There's a pause. And so oftentimes in desperation, we think, God, would you just hurry up? Would you just hurry up, please? And Jesus says, no, no, my plans are never at the expense of another. They always work all together. But I want us to look at this woman. So it says to us, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a dis discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered under many physicians and had spent all she had and she was no better, but rather grew worse. You have to see the context. I want you to see, first of all, her suffering. 12 years. 
That's not a short time. Twelve years. I, I, I mentioned to my wife, I don't know that there's anything special about it, but I think it's fascinating that, that the woman had suffered for twelve years and the daughter that Jesus was about to heal was twelve years of age. What if this woman started her suffering with this issue of blood the same time this child was born so that God could work together for this one moment of history? An incredible miracle. But I want you to consider her suffering. She must have been anemic from all the blood loss. If you ever have any major blood loss, you get anemic, you get tired, you get worn out. Constant blood loss. In fact, later on in the text, we'll find that the blood flow was considered a fountain, a spring that just kept flowing. I don't know how this works, that she would stay alive with all the blood loss, but she must have always felt drained and tired. Can you imagine waking up every morning and feeling drained and exhausted for 12 years? That's suffering. The other day, Yesterday, I was running out to my truck. I guess it was Friday. And I, like a klutz, tripped. And fell across the stones and I cut my hands all up. I'm getting old. I told my wife, I said, can you imagine how many broken hips I'm going to have when I get to be old? I thought that hurt and my daughter is laughing at me. She thought it was hilarious watching her father go plummeting. But, you know, I'm thinking that hurts. And then I think, dude, 12 years. Suffering, exhaustion, pain. Brothers and sisters, you've got to get the context of this in order. And that's just a small glimpse of this. Notice the struggle. It says that under many physicians, she's trying to find a fix. I want you to understand what the Talmudic the Talmud, which was the, 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 uh, the writings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the religious, the teachers of the law, what they would have written. This is, this is the treatment that would have been prescribed for this blood flow. In the Talmud, it says, Take of the gum of Alexandria the weight of Zuzi, a fractional silver coin of Alm, of the same, of crocus the same, let them be bruised, let them smashed together, and given in wine to the woman that has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take of Persia some onions, three pints, boil them in wine, and give them to her to drink, and say, arise from thy flux. Sounds like a fun one, right? If this doesn't cure her, set her in place where two ways, where two roads meet, put her right there and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come behind her and scare her and say, arise from thy flux. But if that does not work, take a handful of cumin, a handful of crocus, and a handful of fenugreek, which is another kind of fennel, let these be boiled in wine and give them to her to drink and say, Arise from thy flux. If those don't work, other doses, over ten in number, are prescribed. Among them is this, let them dig seven ditches in which uh, you let them burn 
some cuttings of vines not yet four years old. Let her take in her hand a cup of wine and let them lead her away from this ditch and make her sit down over that one and then let her remove from that one and make her sit down over another, saying to her, each time arise from thy flux. Can you imagine the expense and all the wine and the things that they would have to go through? In fact, the text tells us that she had gone through many physicians. She had not gotten any better, but she had gotten worse and she had lost her savings financially in ruin. Her condition was worse than the beginning. So she suffered for 12 years physically. She struggled with all the efforts to find a fix. But it's not just the suffering and the struggle but there's also the shame. If only the suffering and the struggle was bad enough, you have the shame, the absolute humiliation of having to go before every doctor and, and talk about this and having to go before uh, 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 go through all these prescribed things and having to do all these things for 12 years, utter humiliation to never have a cure, to constantly be faced with this. But... She was also declared unclean for 12 years. Leviticus tells us very specifically, I'm not going to read through it, but there's a number of things, but in Leviticus chapter 15, you can find some fascinating, and, and my wife and I were talking about this, and she's like, why would God do that? For 12 years, anyone she would have touched would have been declared unclean. Any clothes she would have worn would have had to have been sanctified and cleansed each and every day for 12 years. Any bed that she laid in had to be cleansed. The sheets taken up and washed every single day. Any furniture she sat on would have been declared unclean. Anything she would have done. Her husband most likely would have had every legal right to divorce her and walk away if she was married. Her children could not be around her. Her parents could not be near her. She was never permitted to go into the synagogue or the temple. Because she was unclean for 12 years. Unclean for 12 years. That means that she could have had zero human contact for 12 years. No hug. Nothing. Not even a handshake. 12 years. Can you imagine the heartbreak and the desperation of this woman? But that's not the end of it either. There's one last thing to consider, which is the stigma. In Deuteronomy 28, at the end of God giving and prescribing His law, He says that if anyone persists in sin, they will be given the blotch. That's a fancy Greek word. I'm sure it's not Greek, but that's how the English often translates it, the blotch. I don't know what the blotch is, but I don't want it. But the reality is, the stigma would be this. There is an assumption that if she has this issue for 12 years that can't be cured, it's because of some sin that she has participated in. And most likely it would have been viewed as immorality. So for 12 years she would have also walked around and probably be seen as an immoral person. I mean, the, the, this is the very common thing of that day. I mean, when, when Jesus heals a blind man who had been born, from, been born blind 
uh, the disciples and all those around say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this boy was, or this man was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. But that's the mentality, that if there is somebody that has some sort of infirmity like this, it's probably because of some sin in their life because of Deuteronomy. So not only did this woman suffer physically, she suffered financially, she suffered uh, the, the, the whole humiliation of all of this and the, 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 the lack of physical contact and the, the, the aloneness and all of these things, but also she would have been viewed by most people as they saw her as this immoral woman. Can you imagine the utter desperation of this woman? This whole picture of a woman that was most certainly desperate and worn out from all the hardships of her life. I think of all the times in my life where I am just bogged down with despair and, and I just want it fixed and the, the toll it takes on me physically, emotionally, mentally. This woman was all alone, no finances, no family, no friends, no future. A constant hemorrhage, both literally and figuratively. And this is the picture of humanity today. A constant hemorrhage that cannot be cured. And we will try everything and anything to fix it. She needed something different. She had gotten to the end of her rope. She had tried all these physicians. She had tried all of her finances to fix it. And she needed something else. And she hears in verse 27, her last resort, it says that she heard the reports about Jesus. Praise the Lord. She heard the reports about Jesus Please take note, Jesus is more than willing to be your last resort. He's willing to be your last resort. He's willing to wait while you have tried everything and nothing else works. He's willing to wait until the illusion of all your strength and all your help and all your finances and all your wisdom, until all those things have proved futile, and He is willing to wait till you come to Him. Because it will not work if we have this illusion of our own strength and we will not fully trust Him until all of that is gone. And then we can come to Him. What a beautiful thing. And He is willing to wait for that because He knows of the deep abiding relationship we will have when we do. But I want us to see, so this woman in absolute desperation, you have a man in absolute desperation, what are they willing to do? She's willing to risk everything. The only thing she has left Consider the risk of what she's doing, right? You've got a crowd that's pressing against one another, right? She's willing to go in and try and steal a blessing. You know what that means? She's going to be willing to go and contaminate every single person with this uncleanness to go touch Jesus, to touch his clothes. So she's willing to press into the crowd, infecting them all. She's not only that, but she's also willing to touch a rabbi and make him unclean. you imagine if she would have gotten caught? And what are the results? And this is where the passage is so beautiful. Where she said, and again, the, the language here is, is very similar to Jairus, which I think is very symptomatic of, uh, of desperation. The Greek there is in, imperfect. She kept saying continually over and over in her mind, if I can just touch him. His garments, I will be made well. Over and over again, can you imagine mustering up the strength? If I can just get to him and touch his garments. And then verse 29, immediately, 
We know how Mark loves that term. Immediately the flow of the blood dried up. Again, that Greek word for flow is fountain or spring dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease and Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him immediately turned about in the crowd and said who touched my garments and his disciples they're like come on Jesus really you got to be kidding me there are countless people here pressing against us and you're asking who touched your clothes everybody's touching your clothes consider this The flow stops immediately. These are the results. And she felt it. No question. She felt it. And I want you to see the care. Jesus stops the whole procession. The Greek there for him looking around is feminine. It means that he looked for her. He knew who it was. He looked for her. And he loved her. He knew her trials. He knew all the things she'd gone through. He knew that she had gone through for 12 years. And he uses a word, daughter. It's a diminutive use. It's only used one time by Jesus in all of Scripture. And it's the exact same word that Jairus used for his daughter. My little daughter. Jesus turns to this woman knowing her trials of 12 years. And he says to her, my little daughter. I know you're suffering. My little daughter. Go in peace. He calms her fear. Can you imagine? It says that she, when she realized she couldn't be hid, she comes, falls, trembling before him out of fear. She's probably thinking, oh great, I know that I'm healed, but he's going to take it away because I did this wrong. And Jesus says, no, my little daughter, go in peace. Don't be afraid. Your faith has made you well. Don't be afraid, and guess what? It's permanent. That's tender care from our Lord. That He looks at this woman, He knows her pain, He knows her suffering, and He says, don't be afraid, you're healed. It's permanent. And what I love about this text is He still loves us today through this text. You know how I know that? Because we can read it. If Jesus would have never stopped, the woman would have been healed. She would have gone off and nobody would have known her story at all. We would never have known it. But Jesus stops. He wants her to come forward. Why? So that she can share. It tells us in the text that she told her whole story. She made it all known. And that's how do you think we knew that she was a woman who had been suffering from this issue of blood except that she had told her whole story? Peter, who, who most likely told this to Mark to write it down, wouldn't have known. But Jesus said, no, 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 I want them looking forward to know of my compassion. Let's pause. And poor Jairus in the middle of all this, he's probably like, let's go, let's go, let's go. My daughter is dying. And Jesus says, no, no, this is important. And we return to the story. It says in verse 35, while he was still speaking, There came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Most likely that was a relative. Servants wouldn't have come to deliver that news. Can you imagine the despair that crept into Jairus' heart at that moment? Obviously the relatives didn't think Jesus could do anything with a dead body because they said don't trouble him anymore. 
Up until this point, Jesus had never raised anyone from the dead. So their thought was if he could come and, and you know, for some reason, if he's alive, you know, death was a very formal, uh, very uh, common notion among this people. They would have known it. Can you imagine the despair of Jairus? Hope is now completely gone. Like I said, there's commonality. Uh, so this is a crazy statistic that I read that I just thought was so mind-blowing and heartbreaking at the same time. After childbirth, so post-childbirth, the mortality rate of children till their mid-teenage years, 60%. Six out of ten children after childbirth, after childbirth, if they survived childbirth, till they got to mid-teenage years, six out of ten children died in this time. having seen that over and over again. Last, uh, I'm not going to go there. We had family that passed away last year. 13-year-old boy. My children are familiar with death. They've seen it over and over again because I'm a pastor. But my Nieces and nephews never experienced it. Vast difference. And I praise the Lord that my children understand that this is a shell and not the, the soul. And so I think through the, the, the unbelievable despair of Jairus in this moment, and Jairus looks, had to have looked at Jesus in the midst of this, and Jesus overhearing it, it says in verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus says to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. This is all we have in those moments of despair is the word of the Lord, and let me tell you what a good word it is. Jesus gives him two commands. He says, stop being afraid. Keep believing. In this life, when we have so much to cause us despair and so much to cause us troubles, so much to cause us heartache, so many things that go on in our lives, Jesus turns to us and He says the exact same words that He says to Jairus. Keep believing. Stop being afraid. And then the journey. Can you imagine that journey? A slow walk. Is it not an ultimate picture of life here on earth that this journey, which is not the end, but it's, a, a, it's to the destination that we go, but along the way, can you imagine the heart and the trial of faith that Jairus would have had walking there thinking, I don't know if my daughter's really going to be okay. But the test of faith, to walk through that and to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow what the Lord says. This is all we need to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus turns and He says she's only sleeping. Oh, that we might remember the death of our loved ones, that they are only sleeping and one day they will rise again. I can about guarantee that every one of us has been touched by death in some way, shape, or form. And if we would but realize that they are only sleeping if they have been touched by Jesus, and one day they will rise again. I did a Double infant graveside service a number of years ago. Hard, hard. And we talk about why God would allow these things. But those who have been touched by Jesus will one day rise again. Don't 
stop believing. I'm not going to break into journey. For those of you who know that. But can you imagine the test of faith the rest of the trip? We don't know what's going on. The details was Jesus encouraging him the whole way there, but they get there. Imagine Jairus probably thinking in his mind as his faith is wavering. What's the point? Because he knows finality. He doesn't get it. He's never seen it. Jesus hasn't revived anyone. And they get there and there's this huge commotion. You have to understand that in, in Israel, they would have had professional mourners. They would have had people that would have been paid to come. And that's the announcement when, when you hear wailing. And, and oftentimes, in fact, I think Luke tells us that there were flutes there. Whenever you had that, you would know in the, in the community that somebody had passed away. And Jesus comes to him. He says, what are you guys making this loud commotion about? She's only dead. And they laughed at him and they mocked him. How quickly their wailing turns to mockery. And Jesus casts them out and he says, uh, only, only the, the father and mother and, and those three, uh, Peter, James, and John. I don't have time to dive into why Peter, James, and John. I don't know for sure, but I have some thoughts on that. But he takes them in, just a select few. He casts out the rest. He walks in and you have the second most tender moment in this passage. It says in verse 41, Jesus taking her by the hand, he says to her, Talitha kumai which means little girl, I say to you, arise. It literally means little lamb, arise. Little lamb, arise. She gets up. The text tells us immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Do you think he used the word immediately a little too much? The Greek there probably translated they were freaked out. Overcome with amazement. They had never seen this. And he strictly charges them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. In other words, Jesus looks at everyone and says, hey, we don't need to make a spectacle of this. This is family time. She's been, if, if we make it known that this little girl had been healed and raised from the dead, everybody's going to want to ask questions and see her and touch her and make a spectacle of it. This is family time. We don't, need to, we don't need to subject her to that. Give her something to eat. What incredible stories. Two people of great desperation coming to Jesus. Two people with despair having their last hope riding on this Nazarene whom they had heard about. They hadn't had any relationship with. I'd like to give you two specific thoughts to take away from this. And I already mentioned one of them. Jesus is waiting for us to come to Him in desperation. We have two stories of individuals desperate. One quite possibly would have welcomed death. The other would have done anything to prevent death. And both come to Jesus and find tender love and care in the author of life. Not ridicule, not scorn, this unclean woman who touched Jesus' clothes, which if she would have been unclean, He would have had to cleanse them and wash them and purify them, and He would have been declared unclean for an entire day. And Jesus doesn't look at her and says, why did you touch me? He says, woman, little daughter, you've been made whole. 
If you are in desperation, there is one that you must go to and you will not find ridicule, no matter how foolish you have been. No matter what your problems are, no matter what your desperation is, there is nothing so far beyond that Jesus won't look at you with tenderness and say, be made well. Whatever your bondage is, Whatever is holding you back, He is waiting for you. Whatever you're trying to do in your own strength, whatever you're waiting through to, to figure it out, because you've got the problem solution, you've got the, 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 the means and the effort and the strength to do it, whatever it is, cast it off. He is waiting for you. Are you in trouble, despair, alone, or broken beyond repair? Go to Him. He will not ridicule you for your problems or cast you out, but He will welcome you saying, come to Me, my little daughter, my little son. What a beautiful picture. The second thing I would give you is that life, this life, it's only the journey, it's not the destination. In difficulty, we grab to and cling to the word of the Lord. Stop being afraid, keep believing. And I'd ask the question, has He touched you? Because all whom He has touched, when Jesus touches a dead body, He does not become unclean. That dead body ain't dead no more. And that's the reality of the Spirit as well, that when Jesus touches a soul, it becomes sanctified. And you will rise again. But only those who have come to Jesus, only those who have recognized that this man was not just simply a man, but he was the King of kings and Lord of lords. He came to earth to walk a perfect and holy life that by his life, he could make a sacrifice perfect and holy for those who could never do it on their own. And that he would offer his life on a cross and he would die in place of all who would believe in Him. And all who would believe in Him would be touched by Him and will one day be raised from the dead. He tenderly calls. We can remind ourselves in the darkness and the trials of this journey, Jesus awaits with arms extended, rising up. Paul told us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, brothers, I want you to understand that we do not mourn like the rest of the world mourns. That when those pass on, that we love, that we care for, when they die, we do not mourn as the rest of the world mourns because we know that one day Jesus will come again and those who are dead in Christ will rise up again. When we bury our loved ones, how it would impact us if we would know, but it's just going to be a few years until we will see them again. Martin Luther, incredible member of history, after he had stirred up a revival among the church, his 14-year-old daughter got sick and died. And there's an incredible story you should read sometime if you can find it about what happened at her deathbed where he cried out to the Lord and he said, Lord, why am I not so grateful in this moment for this child that you gave me for so long? My heart breaks, but I know that she will be with you. 
But what was amazing about the story is when Martin Luther went to the funeral, they don't do, they put the, the child in the, the casket, and it's not a casket like we have where it's got a hinge that closes, but they, they put the lid on it and they nail it down. And Martin Luther, as the carpenter began to nail it down, cried out, Hammer away! Because on doomsday she will rise again from the dead. You can hammer away all you want at this life. When Jesus comes back, those in Christ will rise again. Jesus is waiting for us to come to Him in desperation. And if you're here today and you've got desperation, why wait any longer? Why delay what God has for you any longer? If you are suffering in despair because of darkness clouding your life, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Jesus makes life filled with roses and joy all the time. But the reality is that the joy of the Holy Spirit allows us to walk through the difficulties of life in a way that surpasses all understanding. And if today you sit here and you say, I do not know this Jesus because He has not touched my life, why delay? One day He is coming back again and those in Christ will rise again from the grave. But only those in Christ. I'm going to pray. Stephen's going to play some music and we'll sing. We'll worship the Lord together. But if you're in despair today, maybe you have a 12-year bondage to something. And you have sought out all kinds of remedies and all kinds of cures and things that will never succeed. And your strength is failing and your illusion of grandeur and fixing the problem is starting to fade. He's tenderly calling you. Let us as a church family come alongside you and pray with you and bless you and encourage you and lift you up and let us speak words of tenderness to one another that Jesus might tenderly speak to us. Arise, my little lambs. Arise. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank You that You see beyond the mask of what we pretend to be. You know the bondage and the broken hearts that we carry. You know the efforts we put forth to do everything but come to You and still You wait. And Father, I thank You that when we finally give up and come to You, You don't ridicule us for taking so long. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here today, right now, that has been waiting to respond to your call, that sees their life as a broken shamble, a facade, Lord, I pray that they would come to you and realize that you're not going to scorn them. You're going to say, arise, my little lamb. Welcome, my daughter. Welcome, my son. 
Lord, would you speak tenderly to our hearts this morning? Would you encourage us? And would you remind us to not be afraid, to keep believing that you are able? We love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.